Uh, I want to look this morning at uh, the Christmas story, but from a different perspective. Uh, usually we, we think of the Christmas story, we think Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus, shepherds, angels, stars, wise men, those kinds of things. And of course, that is the Christmas story, that is the birth of Jesus. But today, I want to look with you at the Christmas story from a different vantage point. The Christmas story, not so much from below, but from above. Uh, the Christmas story, you could say, from God's perspective, from heaven's perspective on what is going on. And it's the Christmas story as told in the Gospel of John. Uh, if you've got a Bible, John chapter 1. And uh, John is so unique among the Gospels. There's four Gospels, four accounts of the good news of Jesus, and John just really stands out as being so different to the others. Uh, Matthew and Luke are where we tend to get the traditional Christmas story from, and they tell about the birth of Jesus. But John just starts completely, completely differently. Nothing about a manger, nothing about shepherds or wise men or anything like that. What you get in John is this. We'll read the first 14 verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life and that life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Doesn't sound much like the Christmas story, does it? At least not the one we're used to. It'd be hard to create a nativity set of this. But here we are. And I think really the key to understanding what John's saying is the very first three words. John's gospel starts with this. In the beginning. Where have you heard that before? Genesis 1, first three words of the Bible, right? In the beginning. And that's not a mistake. That link between the way John starts his gospel and the way the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament begins, it's clear and it's deliberate, and especially to the Jewish mind, it's unmistakable. And what it tells you right up front, it sets forth John's agenda. It shows you what he's doing, and it shows you how he's going to write this gospel. John is writing a creation story. This is a new creation story. This is a retelling. John 1 is the Genesis 1 of the New Testament. Creation is starting all over again. John's taking us right back to that first moment in the beginning. And he's saying it's happening all over again. New creation. This is new Genesis. In the beginning. In the beginning was the word and this is an obscure reference, isn't it? I mean, we, we find out later on that the Word is Jesus. 
That's quite clear from some later verses. But why does John use that phrase? Why does John describe Jesus as the Word? Why doesn't he say, in the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us? But he says, in the beginning was the Word. Why does he use the word, Word, about the Son of God? I think the best way to understand this is, think again about creation. John's obviously telling us the creation story. Think about what God's Word did at creation. Think about the third verse in the Bible. God said, let there be light. And what's the next phrase? And there was light. God speaks a word, or a few words, and stuff happens. Cosmos, creation, out of nothing, out of chaos. God speaks and there is. And it's interesting in Genesis that it doesn't say God created light. It doesn't say God produced light or that God generated light. It just says God said, let there be light. And there was light. God speaks and it happens. This is what we call a speech act, where the very act of speaking produces something, brings about that which is spoken. The very word spoken brings something about. Stuff's happening just because God says it. And underneath that, you see what John's doing. He's saying it's happening again. God's speaking again. But now his word is something that none of us would have expected. God speaks in the beginning, and he brings about light, and he brings about life. And these ideas are so important. If you read John's gospel, this whole creation idea of life and light is so important to him. The whole gospel is a creation story. He's talking about how God is bringing about new life, how God is bringing about new light, how God is creating all over again. For John, this is creation 2.0. It's all happening again. Because God has created once, And the world loved the darkness instead of the light. And so God is up to something new. I don't know whether you've ever thought about this connection, but isn't it interesting that John starts his gospel, the good news about Jesus, by telling us the creation story? Isn't that interesting? The gospel starts at creation. The backdrop to the manger is creation. Creation and incarnation are absolutely and inseparably bound up together. One leads directly to the other. Creation leads us to incarnation precisely because incarnation is new creation. It's God creating again, bringing new life and bringing new light. The true light that gave light to everything is coming into the world. And so John takes us right back to that opening scene in the whole story, where God brings stuff about. And he identifies Jesus with this word that's spoken by God. That even though Jesus, you read Genesis 1 and 2, obviously Jesus isn't there. Jesus is not mentioned by name. God, the Father is mentioned, the Spirit is mentioned, hovering over the waters, but the Son isn't mentioned directly. But John is saying to us, look closer. He's there. When God speaks, John is saying that's the word, that's the son right there, the spoken word. Maybe in terms of creation, you could think about God the Father as the creator, God the Son as the creating word that is spoken, and God the Spirit as the breath that breathes life into nothingness, that breathes light into darkness. Father, Son, and Spirit, they're all there. And now John says he's doing it again. 
The Father is speaking a new word of creation, a new word of light, a new word of life. He is speaking the Son again, but in a whole new way. And this whole passage comes to its climax in verse 14, where John says, The Word, Jesus, the Son, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The Word became flesh. Such an incredible world of meaning in those verses. The Word became flesh. Because for John, in John's day, much like in our day, many people live with a split view of the world. We tend to divide up all of reality into two categories. On the one hand, we've got the spiritual category. And on the other hand, we've got other. Other. Physical, worldly, secular, material, whatever word you want to give it, we've kind of got the other stuff. So God cares about the spiritual stuff. God's interested in the spiritual stuff. Doesn't care about the other stuff. Not interested, not relevant, not spiritual stuff. And so I'll just give you a few examples of how this plays out, okay? So which category are we going to put God in? Spiritual, right? Pretty straightforward. That's an easy one to start with. Prayer, spiritual category, yep. Your job, other, unless you're a pastor. (laughs) Then it's spiritual, right? Okay, so if you work for a church or a parachurch organization or a Christian ministry or even a Christian bookshop, that still counts. You get to be spiritual, okay? But if that bookshop, you know, if it stocks a few non-Christian books, sorry, you're back in the other category. All right, so this is, we'll just keep going here. Uh, Church, spiritual, right? Um, A school, other. What about a church that meets in a school? (laughs) Difficult, too hard, leave it out. On the line, maybe. I don't know where we fit. Uh, A missionary, spiritual, yep. A nurse, other. But what if you're a missionary nurse? Tricky. Tricky, hey? Yeah, it gets hard, doesn't it? Uh, Heaven, spiritual. Earth, other, usually. Uh, Soul or spirit, spiritual. Body, other. On we go. And we just conveniently carve the world up like this. You know, we just sort of, something's spiritual, something's other. Uh, And I know you think, oh, no, I don't believe that, you know, but, but let me ask you this. What comes to your mind as soon as I say the word ministry? How many of you thought immediately of the job you do during the week? Or how many of you thought of my job? Or serving in a church, or some churchy type thing? That's where our minds go, because this is how we've been trained to think. And we think this is following Jesus. We think this is what it means to follow Jesus. And all the while, what we're doing is following Plato and Greek philosophy. We've carved this world up. And I love the way what John does with this one statement the Word became flesh. He takes this, it's like he's got one hand on the spiritual category and he's got one hand on the other category and he just fuses them together. He says, the Word became flesh. The ultimate spiritual reality, the Word, the Son of God, becomes the ultimate physical, earthy, worldly, whatever, secular, other reality, flesh. I mean, John didn't even use the word human. He used the most gritty, earthy, physical word, flesh. The word became flesh. It speaks to us of the value that God places on our humanity, the value God places on our physicality, the value ultimately that God places on this good creation. 
that the Word became flesh. Not just to dip into our fleshiness, not just like sticking his toe in the water, but God immersed himself in our humanity. He immersed himself in our reality. This took hundreds of years for Christians to reconcile themselves to. There were, there were Christians for the first three or 400 years of church history who simply could not affirm the fact that Jesus became fully human because they were so steeped in a way of thinking that this humanity, our physicality, this earthiness is bad. God could not have done this and maintained his godliness. But John is adamant. He is emphatic. The word became flesh. He immersed himself. He enfleshed himself among us. That's what we call the incarnation. That God came to where we are, jumped into it, soaked himself fully in the fullness of our humanity. The word became flesh. That's what a high view God places on humanity and creation. And then John reaches for another metaphor. He says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And that word, that phrase, made his dwelling, that's all one word in Greek, the word skene. It's got a very specific background in Israel's story. In the time that Israel was wandering through the wilderness, wandering through the Sinai wilderness, and God told Moses to build a tent, basically. It was called a tabernacle. And he instructed the Israelites to build a tent, which was going to be set up right in the middle of the camp of Israel, because this is where God would dwell. This is where God would make his skene, his dwelling. So strong was his desire to dwell among and within the camp of Israel. And the tabernacle was right there in the middle of the camp. Everyone else was camped, little pup tents around the outside. But the tabernacle's in the middle. Are you getting a feel for the heart of who God is? This God who didn't, wasn't even content to lead by the cloud and the pillar of fire. It wasn't enough for him. He wanted to skene, be among, be right there in the camp, right there in the center of the Israelite community, incarnated among his people. And so literally, what John is saying is the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. The word became flesh and pitched his tent among us. That's how it reads. So Jesus is this living, breathing tabernacle of God's presence, carrying around the presence of God within his own being. As he walks around those dusty roads of Palestine, has breakfast on the beach with his mates, he is the tabernacle of God, the living, breathing, enfleshed tabernacle among his people. The fulfillment of what the tabernacle was always supposed to be. But I imagine if you'd told anyone back in Israel's day that this is what God was eventually going to get up to, it would have bowled them over. It was enough to think that God would just encamp among the Israelite community. Try telling them God's going to become flesh, make his dwelling among you and within you. I mean, this is just overwhelming. We've become so blasé with it. God became flesh and tabernacled among us. He moved into the neighborhood and he pitched his tent here among us in humanity. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, says John. And that word glory is tied up with the tabernacle. That's why he talks about glory, because glory always goes with the tabernacle. Wherever the tabernacle is, there's the glory of God. They call it the Shekinah glory, the manifest, the presence, the glory of God radiating forth. Of course, only the high priest could get in, and only once a year. But the glory was there. 
And now John says the glory is here. We've seen it because we've seen the tabernacle. It's Jesus. It's a man. He's the tabernacle. We've seen him. We've approached him. We've beheld him. And so we have beheld the Father's glory. You often think of Jesus when he comes to earth giving up glory, don't you? It's an interesting phrase John uses because we tend to think Jesus gave, put aside his glory and he became human. But John tells us the opposite. He says, we have beheld his glory. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father. And I wonder if what John is saying is that maybe the most glorious thing about the Son of God is that he would give up his heavenly home and incarnate himself among us. Maybe that is where his true glory resides. Not just in his majesty and his sovereignty and his splendor, essential though that is, but maybe the most glorious thing about God is his self-giving, self-emptying, self-lowering, self-humbling love that led led him to take on our flesh, our humanity, and encamp himself among us. That's real glory. That's true glory. And John says we've seen it because we've talked with him. We've eaten with him. We've chatted with him. We've seen his miracles. We've seen his life. We've seen the glory of the one and only. This is what we call the incarnation. That God was not content to save us from a distance. He could have. He's God. But he wasn't happy with that. So strong was his desire for Skane to dwell among us that he came down, moved into our neighborhood, and dwelt among us. And I would suggest that the most incredible thing about the incarnation is that it's not just something God did for us in Jesus, but it is something that he calls us to do for others. Not that we are going to suddenly become human from being God, but that the incarnation gives us a model of what it means to be Christians in the world. The incarnation gives us a pattern. God has become incarnate among us, and now he asks us to be incarnational among other people. Not standing at a distance, not being removed, not just kind of reaching out, you know, like the kind of the Sistine Chapel, God just reaching out his finger and maybe just hoping that his finger will meet Adam's finger. This is not the way that God has called us to relate to the world. He's called us to do exactly what he did, to incarnate ourselves among the communities and the experiences and the stories and the worlds of people that we know. There's a church up the road from where Anna and I lived, Zion Hill Methodist Church. It's on the corner of Highbury, the Highbury Shopping Centre. Brilliant real estate. I mean, right there. And you know, I mean, where you live, think about your own suburb. Churches often in Auckland have those historic churches, those old Catholic, Presbyterian, Anglican churches, they often have pride of place, don't they? There's another one in Takapuna I drive past. I have some serious pastor envy when I drive past that church. <laughs> but they, they have just ama- like fantastic buildings. Yes, they're old, but they're, they're amazing. They're right there. And you, and you get the feeling, I think that Zion Hill Church, the land was given in the mid-19th century. It was a time when the church had pride of place in its community. It was always the first thing to go in. It was the city on a hill. It was the light to the world. And it was very much that mentality that the church is here. If you want to find God, you come. 
Here we are. There's presence, there's prominence. Culturally, the church had status and privilege and acceptance within its community. And our culture has drifted a long way. Those days are gone. And I know that there are some losses there. But let me be a little bit provocative and say, I don't think that's all bad. I don't think it's all bad that that era of Christendom is over. Because I think we're getting back to what the New Testament church was always called to be. Not a come and see church, but a go and be church. And I think in this post-Christendom, post-modern era, that's exactly what we have the opportunity to become. I love the way Michael Frost and Alan Hirsch describe what an incarnational church is. They say, by incarnational, we mean the church does not create sanctified spaces into which unbelievers must come to encounter the gospel. Rather, the missional church disassembles itself and seeps into the cracks and crevices of a society in order to be Christ to those who don't know them yet. Isn't that wonderful? The church disassembles itself and seeps out into the cracks and crevices of a society. Which means that being incarnational is not just about big community serving projects and church activities and church ministries. It is about us as individuals. It is about us as families. It is about us as friendship groups and life groups. Disassembling ourselves and asking, how can I be incarnational? How can I do just what God has done for me? Pitch my tent among others. Become skene, dwell among, dwell within. Go to, rather than expecting them always to come to us for some program, some service, something that's going to do something. We need to be the ones who are prepared to go. Anna and I used to live downstairs from a clown. Literally, a clown. Took us a while to figure out that he was a clown. His number plate was Walnut. Didn't quite know what that meant. You know, what is he, does he sell walnuts? Does he import walnuts? What, what's the, how, how's the walnut industry doing? Um, he had amplifiers that he'd take out of his van. He'd come and go at funny times, you know. It was the red nose that really confused us, you know. No, he didn't, <laughs> he didn't really have a red nose. But. Uh, but he was a professional clown, lovely guy. And he was also into all this spiritual stuff. He had a group that met in his home, and it was thin floors above us, or our ceiling, his floor. He was right above us. And he'd have a group, and they would obviously be marching around his living room. And they'd sing Amazing Grace, and then they'd sing Pocatacatiana. And it was just all over the map, you know, this sort of stuff. We didn't, we didn't know where they were, what kind of spiritual group this was. And we had some good conversations with them. Uh, I remember one night, somehow I, I ended up going upstairs for a coffee with him and just chat, just talking, just, just listening to his story a little bit, trying not to judge, trying not to sort of shove Jesus down his throat, but just, just trying to get a sense of where is he coming. He was telling me this weird thing about spiritual fault lines around the world where spiritual things happen. If you get on the spiritual fault line, something's going to... It was just crazy. But, you know, I, you know, we talked about stuff, and I shared a little bit about Jesus. Um, not too much. I could sort of see he wasn't too keen to hear it and wasn't too open to it at that stage. But we had a good time. And just being there in his living room, having a coffee and chatting and trying to get in his world and, and doing my best, I guess, to represent something of the life and the light of Jesus, it was an incarnational moment. And I don't think I'm great at that stuff. But that was one opportunity where I felt like, you know, this is... This is what the gospel calls us to do, to go and to be. Maybe this time of year, one way to do that is the old classic Christmas street party. 
You know, I've never been a huge fan of them. It's not really my, my scene, you know. But a couple of years ago, we got invited to a Christmas street party. Different house from the one downstairs from the clown. But we went along to this, and uh, we didn't really know half our neighbours. Even the ones that live right beside us, we barely knew them. But it was in their home. And there's something about being there in their home, just chatting with them, asking some questions, sharing a bit of our story. That's incarnational stuff. This is exactly what followers of Jesus should be doing. Is there someone that you can be incarnational to between now and Christmas, in this coming week? Someone you know. Maybe it's the guy that serves you fish and chips every week and you never really have a conversation with him other than, you know, the FPOS conversation. Could you ask a question about how the year's been for him? And how the business is doing. Could you just ask one question? Could you be in someone else's world? Could you take some baking to someone on your street? Is there someone you know who's a bit lonely? And you could just be present. You could be incarnate with them and in their world. Look, if you can get people to the Christmas Eve service, wonderful. But that's not the end game. That is not the sum total of what it is to be a church. It's not the sum total of the gospel. It is disassembling ourselves and taking the responsibility to allow the life and the light of Jesus to seep into the cracks and crevices of our neighborhoods, our streets, our workplaces, our gyms, our coffee groups, our sports teams, and our social circles. And whenever we have opportunity, loving and serving and sharing and being present, and yes, telling God's story when that's appropriate, but simply pitching our tent among people is following in the way of Jesus. And that's good stuff. There's one last time that that word skene gets used in the Bible. Right at the end of the Bible in Revelation 21, you have this wonderful vision of the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city coming down from heaven to earth. And the voice from the throne says, look, The dwelling place of God, same word, skene, the dwelling place of God is now on earth among his people. This is the ultimate incarnation right here, where God finally is going to pitch his tent in an extravagant way, and he is going to be present among us finally and fully for all time. That's the greater incarnation that is to come when God will dwell among us and reign directly over his creation for eternity. So we live between the first incarnation and the second incarnation. We live between the first advent of Jesus, the first arrival, and the second advent, the second arrival. There's going to be another one. He's going to make a bit more splash with the next one. And our challenge and our calling in this in-between time between the first incarnation and the second incarnation of Jesus is to be incarnational Christians who don't wait and hold back and remain separate and sectarian from our culture and our society and the spheres of influence we have, but those who move out and who dwell among in the worlds and the experiences and the stories of those people that we know and some that we don't with the life and the light and the love and the good news of Jesus. So may we experience the incarnation this Christmas deeply and richly, the coming of Christ afresh into our lives and our world. And may we also be incarnational Christians to those around us.
who don't know Jesus yet. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have not remained apart from us, that you have not just saved us from a distance, reaching down and just making things better, but you have done that by entering into our world fully and completely. And God, we feel that challenge this morning to be incarnational Christians. And I pray that you would bring to our mind, to our conscience, to our hearts, names and faces of those whom we can be incarnational toward. Give us the courage to go and to express your life and to express your light however we can. We want to be incarnational just as you have come among us. And we long for and we cry out for that great final incarnation to come. And we say with John, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. Hasten the day of your arrival. And until then, may we walk in your footsteps and express you to those around us. Amen. Connection Point is a joint production between Connection Resources and Shaw Community Christian Church. If you would like a free copy of today's message, please email us or phone us on 0800 90 30 90. To subscribe to our free podcasts or to listen to the latest message, go to connectionresources.org.nz.